Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Today, Joe Welker joins us to discuss his thoughts on the topic of faith and psychedelics. Enjoy. Today, we welcome Joe Welker for the podcast. Joe is a Master of Divinity candidate and ministry fellow at Harvard Divinity School, having received his bachelor's in religious studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is a member of the Presbyterian Church USA, where he is discerning a call to ordain ministry. Joe is the creator and former host of the podcast, Choose Your Own Religion, a conversational and confessional storytelling docuseries, and the project manager for the Sacred Plant Alliance, supporting religious rights for sacred plant communities. Joe Welker, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Clint, thanks so much for having me. Um, really, really been looking forward to this conversation. Um, like I've, like I told you, I really loved your earlier episodes and so happy to get into it. Well, it's great having you here with us today and I appreciate it. Just give us a basic understanding of your early life and spiritual upbringing. It's uh, my understanding that your dad was a, was a pastor, right? Yes, he was. I think he's still, you could still technically say he is. He did just retire from uh, ministry in the Presbyterian Church USA also. Um, and I, so I grew up in small town, North Carolina, a little town called Newton, which is kind of in the foothills of uh, kind of near Charlotte, Nashville area, NASCAR Beautiful country. country. Yep. Yep. And uh, had a, had a small, small Presbyterian church that I really loved dearly growing up. I really loved the people in that community that raised me. It was uh, like, like a lot of Presbyterian churches, you have people on both sides of the political aisle. It wasn't heavily um, extreme either direction. And I really appreciated, especially now, I, I really appreciate that we had a community that could love each other across our political differences, since that's such a rare thing, it seems like these days more and more. And that's been a big part of my own, that, that informs my ministry still, is that, that belief that we can do that. But so I, I had the Presbyterian upbringing pretty standard. I was not rebellious, really. In fact, I was pretty um, goody two-shoes through, <laughs> through most of high school, pretty into church. I, I was a theater kid, too, and all this stuff. I was a little bit of a weirdo. But um, it was, once I got to college and undergrad uh, at, at UNC Chapel Hill, um, started studying the Bible more academically and rigorously is when I kind of began what the kids are now calling deconstruction. It wasn't called deconstruction back then. It was just called leaving church. Yeah, <laughs> abandoning know? the faith. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I've talked with some folks that that was also when I first started experimenting with cannabis and had a handful of psychedelic experiences. And so I, I don't want to give people the impression that it was, it was more of those. It really was more the religious studies when I started learning about sort of like some of the, this, this really academic approach to the Bible. That was a lot of stuff I hadn't heard, but 
also unlike seminary, when a lot of people, a lot of ministers learn stuff about this in seminary, but they have a more theological lens and the professors are sort of giving them a sort of framework to be thinking about and processing it. And I was at a, a public university where it was kind of like, well, good luck. Here's, here's some information. But so that those experiences combined with a handful of early psychedelic experiences as I was already on my way out gave me the impression, the feeling that like I was kind of a Christian because it was just totally random. Like I had no, I didn't feel like I'd ever picked my, my faith. And I was like, I don't know if that I would pick this if I, if I were starting from a blank slate, I, I, it felt like I couldn't be authentic. It wasn't really my own, own thing. It was, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of free will involved in it, so to speak. And so I, I left Christianity. Um, I was an atheist only for a small period, like a true atheist, but I, I quickly got into Eastern philosophy, Eastern religion, Buddhism. So where I, I kind of became more agnostic on what we mean by the word God and all this stuff. But I was, I was not really interested in Christianity for, for a long time. And uh, I moved to Los Angeles where that is the official religion is being vaguely Buddhist. So <laughs> very much fit in there. But I, I had this, uh, and I, I well, the, in, the, in the South, we have moralistic deism. So, right. Right. <laughs> very different, very, very different, uh, pendulum swing there. But yeah, I, I, and I told my parents before I left for LA that I was not a Christian, um, after having not been one for a couple of years by that point. And that was a real, cause I didn't want them to think that LA made me like a hedon, you know, <laughs> I wanted them to know like, oh, this was, this is all, this is, this is a, not related to that, but that's pretty insightful. You did that before you moved. Yeah. So well, you kind of anticipated how they would, they would react to you moving out there and being maybe more uh, authentic to who you were. I think so. Yeah. And I mean, authenticity had become a more and more important word to me. Now, how I've, how I think about authenticity now is very different, but at the time I got, I was also starting to, right after college, I was starting to get into stand-up comedy. Um, and this was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And that was an art form that was like, as I was leaving Christianity and leaving a place where I, I did feel for a lot of time, there was something that felt at odds with me not being able to say everything, like express my full self growing up and certainly in church environments where you've certain things you can and can't say the sort of social pressure, especially in the South for me, it was like a very much like, you know, being, you know, it's kind of a, you want to be nice and pleasant Christianity. That was my, that, that was sort of my, the vibe at a lot of the churches wasn't, wasn't always exciting. It wasn't always like edgy, so to speak. And so I stand up really allowed me to theoretically stay whatever I wanted to say, <laughs> um, talk about stuff I wanted to, that were, that's really going on with my sexuality or whatever. So yeah, the idea of being authentic, authentic was really important to me. I got a tattoo said S.A. Quam Videri, which is the North Carolina state motto, which means to be rather than to seem. I'm like, that's a, that's a good motto. I'm into that. I've never heard um, of that motto. Yeah. I like that. So I, I was in Los Angeles for many years doing comedy, doing the stand-up thing. I took some detours on that route, but I was really headstrong when like, I want to dedicate my, my life, my 20s at least, to trying this comedy thing and seeing where it goes. It felt like a, an itch I needed to scratch. 
And along the way, I met some friends who had a podcast network. I also used to do an improv and suggested that I start a podcast because I'd always still, I remained interested in religion, you know, this whole time, even when I was in LA, I was always exploring again, mostly like Buddhism and Zen and all, all other kinds of things. And so I started this podcast, choose your own religion. That was more of like a choose your own adventure kind of vibe at first. And I, you told me before we started that you'd heard a couple of these, those early episodes where it's, there's a lot of me and my ex-religious comedy friends uh, going through our baggage and then making up and inventing our own religion by the end. Like what would our ideal religion be like, you know, kind of silly, but also there's, there's some, there's some good stuff I think that came out of some of those conversations still. And one of those things was that we all missed community. It was almost Almost every guest said something to that effect. And I was like, yeah, I missed that too. And so 2017, I began, I began searching for some kind of spiritual community. And by that point, I hadn't done psychedelics for, for many years. I had stopped in my early 20s um, after I took an irresponsible amount uh, on the, of a psilocybin trip, which is a whole other story for another podcast, probably. So yeah, that was kind of my... That was, that was my background up to that point. And by the way, feel free to, to interrupt me. I can give a whole, a whole Ted talk right. you know, for <laughs> 20 minutes on this, but. Well, the draw, uh, I do want to address your draw to stand up. Um, did you always have a proclivity for public speaking? Because for many people that's, you know, that's terrifying. You know, the idea of, of getting up in front of people and especially in a comedy environment, because in a more, what we might call a more serious structured environment, people are, they're going to mind their P's and Q's. They're going to give a little deference to the guy on stage and, or the gal on stage and let them say their piece. Even if they're not interested, they may be daydreaming while the person's talking. But in comedy, if you don't have, if you haven't wrapped people's attention, they're probably going to let you know. So, oh yeah. So oh, there's a certain there's a certain um, <laughs> self sacrificial element to stand up comedy that I respect people who do are willing to subject themselves to that uh, very toilsome process, especially early on. Or that's something is that something that came natural to you? Yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, preaching is certainly somewhere in my genes, not just because of my dad, but also my great great grandfather was a Lutheran minister. So it's clearly there's something about my my line of dudes that just likes talking i also was a like i was mentioning i I was into theater so i had some public performance that was not my own stuff it was just like you know reading off of a script somebody else wrote but you'd been exposed to um being being in front of a large crowd yeah but i but stand-up was a whole a whole nother beast. And if I, <laughs> frankly, if I hadn't had substance abuse problems at the time, I don't know that I could have gotten through <laughs> all the public, the initial burst of uh, getting used to, to doing stand up and getting used to bombing. I mean, the first, the first time went pretty decent. I think even the second time went okay, but like numbers three through 10 were just terrible, just absolutely, absolute garbage. And it, it was, it's a hard, it's a hard business to get good at because you have you, the only way you can practice is in front of other people. I mean, there are talented people who are pretty good quickly, but there's almost no way around like some growing edges and having to force people to endure your practicing. <laughs> so it's and then you endure their lack of interest and their uh, <laughs> the clear information they're telling you. 
which is uh, this is just this is not, not working oh <laughs> uh, you know well with any occupation or hobby you know most of the time you're able to endure those failures just personally but when you're in the public eye um on stage in theater uh, but even that is buffered a little bit because you have so many other people in the, in the process. But when it's one person on a stage with a light shining in their face and it's all on you, um, those failures probably feel far more intimate and far more personal. Oh, than yeah. they do if you make a mistake, you know, in a drama or where there's a lot mm-hmm. of other uh, actors involved. Oh, definitely. And I, I've, been preaching the past couple years now since starting seminary and I love preaching and one (laughs) one reason I love it is that it's a lot more forgiving you know people don't it's the thing about stand-up it's that everybody knows whether you're succeeding or failing generally speaking like with preaching you could be failing but like half the room could be like I don't you know whatever he did fine it's not as an obvious of a like oh he is he is failing at the goal he set out to do, which was make us laugh. And I'm not laughing. They're not laughing. <laughs> no. And it was, so I, and I, I experienced some of those differences also with improv when I did a little, I did improv for a couple of years. That was also hard, but at least like you were saying with theater, it's like a little bit displaced. I can blame my, my teammates if I need to assuage my own ego. <laughs> um, but, and I also, did, one, one big pivot point for me during this whole period, it also started in 2017, was I, I got into storytelling, like moth style storytelling. And it kind of happened by accident. I just did a couple of random storytelling shows around town. And then I, I fell in love with, what I, what I discovered was that stand up for all of its reputation as being this last bastion of free speech, which is true in some ways, but in other ways, it really forces a certain kind of speech. It really forces a certain kind of, you know, you have to write to get punchlines. And so complex emotions are not really a part of stand-up, generally speaking. Some, some masters of the craft can kind of pull it off. But even then, it's not, you know, so many people, especially in the open mic world, are like clearly there for therapy. I was clearly there for therapy in part. It's a terrible therapeutic environment, by the way. If anybody's thinking about doing stand-up for therapy, just go to therapy. Therapy is <laughs> a much more direct way of doing that. But storytelling really allowed me, kind of like preaching, where it was allowed me to, to sit in my sadness and not make a joke out of it, to like express a, a really painful breakup or a painful... Uh, I, you know, I told the story of telling my parents that I didn't believe in God. That was one of the first kind of on stage stories I told. And that was really cathartic for me. I mean, it was so much layers of catharsis because telling them I didn't believe in God was an initial catharsis. But then the the reverb of that and my relationship with them for years um, was a lot, it was painful for a lot of my twenties. And I, I didn't have a great relationship with them. Um, I can only imagine how many people in the audience probably never had the courage to have that conversation with their parents. You know, maybe they grew up in a certain religious environment that they either rejected or at least slightly deviated from and just didn't have the courage to tell their family. I, I, you know, I disagree with you. Personal example. Last year, my son, my oldest, came to me and with a lot of awkward trepidation and confessed to me that he had become a Roman Catholic, you know, and I. (laughs) And I was like, the horror. Yes. I was like, oh, okay. 
you know, because, <laughs> and he was like, you're okay with that. You know, he was like, I was expecting, you know, a more adverse reaction, you know, and I said, son, mm-hmm. your, your heart is following God. And if that's where he's leading you, I'm, I'm on board with you chasing God. Well, and I want to give credit to my, both my parents that, that, that first conversation was hard. It was just really sad. They weren't, they didn't get mad at me or anything and they never, they never stopped loving me. They, they, they were hurt and confused, I think at first, but they, I think a big reason why I was, you know, one of the reasons I was able to come back and um, to Christianity was that they never, that, that did not get in the way of them just loving me as parents either. Yeah. So, it, but it was, I, I do think you're right that a lot of people don't have that conversation and I, I can't blame them. I mean, it's, it's not like, I don't think there's anything particularly special about me needing to tell them. It was just like an, imp- it was an impulse that this particular human had <laughs> to like, it's going to bug me if I don't say it. But then I, you know, I, then I, for five, five, six years after that, I h- hardly had a very real conversation with them. Like it was very, very painful having very, I was, you know, I, I didn't know where to, where to begin with anything I was going through. And I know other people. Yeah. They, I think a lot of people with their religious stuff, if they've deviated, it's a lot easier if you're, especially if you're not living in their, their, their home to like, I'll just show up for the holidays, go to the Christmas service, pretend like it's all good. We don't need to get into it. That makes a lot of sense to me. But you know, when, when that's happening and you're just going through the motions, I think often people tend to know anyway. And that yeah. becomes, that becomes its own awkwardness. You know, I think if we were just maybe honest with each other and we had compassion and we were able to accept a person for where they are at that moment, or at least, you know, what ideas they're entertaining and not immediately jump to conclusions or criticisms. You know, I think your parents probably had a lot of wisdom to, to recognize that you navigating your own uh, journey is probably the wisest course of action. And yeah, they were, I, I know dad would still try to plant little Christian seeds. He gave me at least one Richard Rohr book that I was like, who is this guy? I don't care about some dumb Christian author. And I just like just collected dust on my shelf. Of course, Richard Rohr would be pivotal to my <laughs> coming back into Christianity years later. But it's just, it's just funny how I was like so dismissive of like it. I think you're right that there was it would have been obvious at a certain point, but also, you know, sometimes people can be self-deluding about like, well, let's just pretend like everything's fine. And that'll, that'll be just as good. I mean, I think there's, it can go both ways, but I, when I, when I started exploring different spiritual communities in, in 2017, I went to a lot of different Christian churches. I went to a lot of like new agey sort of like spiritual groups I was writing and blogging about all these different things about like how, what if I treated, what if this was my, could I make this my, my community? And I went to some, some churches where I knew I would never join, but I'm like, is there something I can appreciate about this like small evangelical church that I don't agree with on a lot of things. And I, I would always find at least something. And I remember there was like, there's a tiny church that was, was like literally five people and me on a Sunday night. And I was like, it's pretty impressive that they have this level of dedication still. And it's not, it's clearly not about trying to 
it's not based on how many people are showing up. There's clearly some deeper faith here that regardless of whatever else is happening in the culture, they're going to be faithful to each other and faithful to God. And that was inspiring to me, even alone, even though I would, you know, me and this particular group <laughs> did not share a lot in common <laughs> in terms of a lot of other theological stuff. But and that was the, that, that, Part of the that journey was then when I was invited to an ayahuasca ceremony, which also, I mean, it become that 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 becomes a became it just a, the major turning point for me in my my whole faith trajectory. So you would use you know cannabis and psychedelics as a youth, but based on what you've said, that was more just a recreational party type approach. I'm assuming you didn't really go into it with any spiritual intentions or. Well, there were some spiritual, it was spiritual mixed. I would say it was spiritual recreational. You know, I don't, I think there are people who do approach psychedelics from a purely recreational standpoint, but I also think there's a lot of, especially younger people who it's kind of somewhere in between. I mean, I, with my, the girlfriend, I, I first um, tried psilocybin with, she was, we were both into some a more of like, it's like consciousness exploration, sort of this adventurous sort of like trying to know more about the universe and ourselves. So it was, it was somewhat spiritual, if not certainly not religious in our minds. And, but then, you know, and then one time it was at a fish concert, you know, so it's like, there's these, there are, there's a mix in between there and fish is still is my favorite band. They're still the soundtrack of my life. And I, and I was into fish before I ever did psychedelics, just for the record. I, I need to, I always like, like to set people straight on that. I was a sober fish fan for many years. <laughs> the music stands on its, on its own. Um, and I, th- so- I think, I think anyone who's raised with a certain spiritual tradition, you probably couldn't enter psychedelic experience for better or worse, good or bad, without carrying that spiritual, I don't want to say baggage, but that's the only word I can there's a po- more positive word than baggage, I'm sure. A heritage, maybe, you know, anytime a person who's raised in a certain paradigm enters a psychedelic experience, they're probably bringing um, that paradigm in with them. And that's not, that's not good or bad, but it is. Yeah, and consciously or unconsciously. Um, well, then what did this ayahuasca experience arise after a long period of time away from that? And what were your takeaways from that experience? Yeah. So I had not used psychedelics for five years up to that point. I had had one earlier that summer. I like dipped my toes in with psilocybin again, but it wasn't basically, I had not had any psychedelics for five years. And I think what was different for me, a somebody recommended me this place. And I, so it was word of mouth, just heard about it. I kind of was like, well, I'm doing this, this export, this spiritual community exploration thing. This seems like there's something about when I was getting the information about it, I was like, well, it seems like they're, it's ceremonial. Clearly they're asking me about my prayers and my intentions. Like, why do I want to go? So it's not just like random for the hell of it. So there's something different about this group about how they're holding space with this thing. Very, very spiritual and reverent language that they were kind of discussing the whole preparation process with me, which already kind of set a different tone. And I, by that point, it was less about exploration and fun and consciousness. I mean, by the time I'm, I would have been 28, 29, I was not interested in exploration in the way 21, 22, 23 year old me was. By that point, I had accumulated, you know, some pain, some, you know, some people, tra- trauma sometimes is an overused words, but, you know, life is, can be traumatic. And it's not, you know, whether it was, 
the the pain of failing a lot at stand up, that career not going how I wanted to go, a lot of breakups. In particular, there was one really tough relationship that I never quite gotten past and had never really worked through. It felt very stuck. And I and I really felt like I was in a place of not loving myself by that point in my life. And so I went into this ceremony not knowing exactly what I was going to get into. Immediately you just there was a vibe there that was very different, very interesting. I mean, it was captivating for me. I don't want to use terminology that might be misleading, or like label it. It was just energetic. It felt kind of alive. And it felt like there were like 20 ish strangers there who were all, I could tell we were all spiritual seekers. And there's something that, that was something we had in common. And there was the way that the sort of the leaders there, because they were also, it wasn't just one person. There's a little, there's a team of folks. The way they're introducing and walking us through what the process would be, what would happen, I felt very cared for. I felt like there was a lot of attention to detail. I felt like there has been, there was some experience there had been, and, and like I was saying, there was that continued reverential presence that was so, set a whole different tone. And so that first weekend, I, I don't know how interesting quote unquote trip reports are, or like these, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. I know for me, the things that came up really were, I had some experiences of, of relating to my parents during, during the experience. And one in particular, it always stuck with me, which was, I, I remember visualizing that I had just hung up the phone with my mom after another phone call where I said basically nothing, just yes or no questions. I could picture her crying on the other side and I could picture her wanting to talk to me. And we kind of had a conversation, our, our spirits had a conversation and she's still alive. But so, the, and I'm not saying this actually happened in, or any way, but this was what I was, this is what I was experiencing. And she said, I just, she was telling me, I just want you to be happy. I just want to know what's going on. And I was apologizing to her and I was weeping and I was like, I, you know, I, I know that's what you want. And I know that's what really is important. And it felt like in that moment, there was something that really healed from my side of my relationship with her. And then through that, then my dad, my dad's presence kind of came in the room and I was able to heal my relationship with him because I healed my relationship with my mom and kind of experiencing my mom as this, she is the, the biological connection between the two of us. I mean, she really is in a very, in a very real way. And so I, I think I'd underestimate, it felt real to me how much spiritually that was true too. She's also our spiritual link. But all of that made me realize, man, I need to take more responsibility for my relationship in them. Like if I, if I don't, if I want to be treated like an adult and have a, an adult conversation with them, I need to act like an adult for my end. I need to say what's up. I need to be honest with them. And so that was one big thing that I, when, as soon as I saw them two weeks later, I told them I integrated the experience and I was very, I was like this, I told them exactly what happened. They were very grateful for me. And because other things that happened on this, this, this weekend with the ayahuasca, that was, that was the one big relational part, but there was a holistically speaking, it just felt like everything I had been intellectualizing about religion and different spirituality. It was a totally mental thing that this particular medicine and modality, which was unlike other psychedelics experiences I had, it felt way more soulful and embodied and heartfelt and heart-centered. And I think a lot of that was the ceremony in particular and the way this group holds space. 
um, and the music they had and the sort of collaborative, I didn't use these words at the time, but there was really a body of Christ kind of thing happening with how different people in the, in the support staff, the support group would each have their own gift to offer um, their, their own little role to play in the, in the whole, in the course of the weekend. And so it kind of was like, oh, this is what spiritual community really can be like. Like there is actually, and it can feel really alive. It doesn't have to be this mundane, dead obligation thing. It's a way that, and it, it was something that a book I read later by Joseph Calabrese called A Different Medicine, which is um, his story, his, his document or his ethnography of going to this peyote community. He described it as there's a way through these plant medicine ceremonies that worship can become therapeutic and therapy can become worshipful in a way that so often I think my upbringing in art and Christianity can sometimes want to separate those two because it feels too, sometimes to have an intense worship and an intense therapy at the same time feels like a bit much. And so that turned me on, so to speak, spiritually speaking. And I knew I wanted to keep working with this medicine. I, I knew I wanted to, I knew I, I had some pivot I needed to make in my life towards some kind of like being of spiritual service. I really didn't know what that was going to look like. And anyway, I, maybe I'll pause there. <laughs> that was that, a lot. That, no, that's fantastic. There's a lot to explore there. So how would you describe your intentions going into this ceremony? Were you searching for anything specific? Or were you interested to receive insight? I guess, what were your, um, how would you have encapsulated your intentions? My intentions, I've since, I think, gotten more specific with my intentions. But at the time I was like, I want to learn about self-love. I want to learn how to love myself better. I want to heal this relationship that I, this, this breakup um, that had been, it felt like the one that had gotten away. And I wanted to also, part of the self-love thing was like exploring my relationship with alcohol. And that, that was actually a pretty simple and clear one, um, which is like almost immediately in the first ceremony, I, I swear it was like the first hour or two, the message I got was like, yeah, that's not serving you. Just like step away from it. I'm like, yep, you're right. And I haven't drank since that, that, that very first. And I haven't really, I haven't gone to any kind of support group or anything. And, and I'm not, um, you know, shitting on those and my, you know, my sister is very publicly a part of the recovery community. So I know it can mean a lot to a lot of different people, but I just, it was something where that happened really quickly for me about a, a very clear, like for me, I needed to, I'd had a problem with alcohol for such a long time. And it was like, this is, it's just not helping you thrive. It's just not for you. And, but those were, it was self-love and healing um, this relationship in particular and I think authenticity was another aspect of that was like, what does it mean to be authentic? Um, if you don't want to explore that relationship, that's fine. But did you meet information or experience that informed those intentions or did the process with your parents just kind of come up natively on its own and kind of uh, maybe push those other intentions aside because sometimes people go in with an intention, but then that's supplanted by maybe something peripheral or maybe something more important. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think the the parent thing just happened more or less organically as far as I remember it. I'm like hesitating to say all this. I know I was journaling about it at the time. I have to go back and like read my journals from that time period of like, what was, 
was I was was I thinking about that going in or did it just happen? I, I feel like I remember it just kind of coming, just kind of coming up as and maybe and I think in a way it's like even those things that emerge, I feel like they're often related to my intentions. Just that I hadn't been, I didn't realize how they would have related. Um, I didn't see. Um, yeah. And I, I think with the, the relationship that I was working on, the, the stuff continued in the rest of that weekend to help process that in a way that's a, that's a lot of what I think plant medicines and psychedelics are, are really good for is, is like, you know, spiritual WD-40, so to speak, it's unsticking some stuff that's stuck, not, not to like, you know, sometimes the word we use the word healing. And I think there is healing in the process, uh, in that processing of stuff, but it's not always a, like I'm healed from it. Like it's, it's not over. necessarily like a big resolution, right? It's just, you were able to internalize that experience and come to grips with it on some level and get some movement around it, get some breath into it, get some, get it, get the, you know, if I'd been, if I'd been on a dead end of like, Oh, I don't know how I'm like going to get over this, getting some more, some more, I don't know if it's information, just getting and getting it infused. <laughs> Basically it felt like I was infusing it with love, infusing it with some love, some higher love intelligence than I was norm, able to normally bring to my pain in my regular waking life up to that point. I mean, it's, it's so much that I've learned and I, I learned this summer, I'm getting ahead of ourselves now, but I, this past summer I was uh, a chaplain intern at a, a VA hospital in Nashville, North Carolina. And so much of a, what I learned about chaplaincy, it's not healing people. It's just cr- helping facilitate the conditions for them to process, helping, helping them get some movement around the things that has their trauma or whatever it is that's been stuck and helping being a person that can help. Sometimes your presence, you're, you're as a conversation partner, as somebody showing curiosity into them is what can help some, a person just get some, get their thought process going, get their, their, get it flowing again. Um, and I think a lot of that is also what can happen um, with plant medicine and, and psychedelics. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, after, after that experience, I guess you had a process of integrating all that. Did you find a new direction for uh, interest, career, et cetera, a- after that? And, or or was, did that take time to formulate? Or did you kind of very early, did you quickly have a new direction? I quickly knew I wanted I had a new orientation. The specifics, you know, have, have shifted many times since then. I mean, they, they still do. It's not that I had like a specific, like instant, Oh, I need to do this, but they, I was like, I want to do some kind of professional spirituality. Maybe I'm supposed to be a minister. Maybe for a while I was like, maybe I'm supposed to like join this group and like really help out or whatever. And there, there's a whole story around that, why that was not aligned at the time um, that I won't get into right now, but I found, um, I learned and I, I attended a Unitarian Universalist church early in my like church shopping year. And I enjoyed the sort of like how they thought about spirituality and allowed for a lot of individual, um, individuality with it. And so I, for a year or two, I, I became a Unitarian Universalist and I actually applied uh, to Harvard as a Unitarian Universalist. I was active in a couple of different UU churches in Pasadena 
um, which were, I think, are still a really important part of my my faith journey and my development and sort of affirming me being like all over the place with my theology and spirituality and cobbling together a lot of different things and recognizing that there was something in me that <laughs> that was worthy of pursuing this this call to, to ministry, even though I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. I, I still... I, I had come to some sort of some sort of belief that there was something to organized religion as much as I didn't want to admit it. There's something to at least being organized, <laughs> not the religious part. There's something to like having some structure. There's something to some like, well, what, what are we even talking about when we say organized religion? We're just talking about like people gathering together over a certain shared set of assumptions and ideas and having some structure to it. And I don't think the answer, I came to the conclusion that the answer is not to just say, well, let's, let's, let's just be disorganized. Like, I, I don't right. know that that was really the answer. Um, but right. Structure can become oppressive, but that doesn't mean that all structure is oppressive. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, and so, but it was a funny thing happened. I, and I kept, I kept sitting with ayahuasca at the same community. Initially I was going back often um, it, it came more and more spaced out over, over time. And I had one last um, journey with them before I came to Harvard in which, and, and part of my process with them, I'm really grateful for how they, they held space because they allowed people, most of it was kind of curated and held by their own leaders, but at the very end of each ceremony, they would allow people, if they, if the spirit so led, and if it was kind of aligned with what was happening in the room with everybody else, they would allow people to offer their own song as like a prayer offering or like play, you know, could play a cover or whatever. And I started um, playing old Christian hymns that I used to, and I was not a Christian at this point, but I remember there was a handful of songs that, 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 that felt really trying to heal my relationship to Christianity became also a big part of the work I was doing. And that being able to, first of all, um, fall, feel like, like I, I, ayahuasca had helped me reconnect my, my voice to my soul in a way that happens for a lot of people. And it's a really hard to explain thing, but there just became a lot more of a soulful connection there that made me enjoy playing music again at home, not for any career, not for any particular purpose, just like just as a part of my spiritual practice. And um, so I, I remember the first song I offered was How Can I Keep From Singing and took out like the, the Jesus references in that because I didn't want to like trigger other people because this was not a Christian place and a lot of people who did have Christian hangups. And I, but as I kept offering songs, like kind of as a slow process and listening to some Richard Rohr talks and hearing some other Christians talk about different ways you can think about Christianity and having already what's more is having done some of that healing work relationally with my parents, relationally with my lineage and my ancestors and really desiring some kind of connection to my ancestors. So this is all leading up to this, this last journey before I, I came, I moved out to Boston where like all these experiences, they're so ineffable. They're so impossible to describe, but I was, I was feeling the most, the most purely just what, you know, it's, it sounds so cliche when you talk about it, like so covered in light, like there's no way to like, you know, but, but what was different was that the words, I'm a child of God came to me. And I was like the, and the power of what 
is actually embedded in that statement, a statement that I'd heard so many times growing up, but that becomes old hat. You're just like, yeah, child of God, whatever. Anyway, got it. But like what that, the depth of what that means of like, I, there's something, something about me that God loves that I come out of God. I've emerged out of God and I'm just one of billions of children that have ever come and that live now you know it's that it's something about that the 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 specificity of how that field simple theological statement captured I, I i still don't know a better way to capture the 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 the, the our relationship to god than well as a, as a theological student you may you may be able to pull the reference out of your calf there i, I can't at the moment but i believe it's the apostle paul talks about crying out abba father yeah. you know that uh it's one thing to say i'm a quote child of god but to have a a wholesome um daddy like relationship with god is a whole different can of worms yeah does that maybe encompass it a little bit like you felt like i'm being held by god not just like i'm yeah. god, one of god's random bastards roaming the exactly. earth i'm like in right. the lap of the father Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really great way to put it. And that, that same, that same ceremony, I, there were other things that came to me and one in particular, I like my, then my mind was started like, well, what other, other theological terms have resonance? What other words have I been missing out? Cause I've, I'd already been like, how can I keep from singing? Seek ye first, like the kingdom of God. Like I'd already been sort of like intellectually, you know, coming back to like thinking about it. And then I was like, Oh, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the way, Presbyterians, that's the, our, that, that's our neglected part of the Trinity is the, <laughs> is the Holy Spirit. We're more of a, yeah. God, the father, great. Christ, the son, love him. Holy Spirit. Ah, you know, he's, it's the spirit. It does spirit stuff. Um, or the spirit shows up in meetings, you know, how <laughs> it's not very inspiring. Um, but I, it, it struck me and I don't know how theologically sound this is, but this is what struck me at the time. Um, oh, the Holy Spirit has been here and working through this, this ceremony, these, these ceremonies, this medicine, and through all of history, this whole time, the Holy Spirit's been here the whole time. Like that's, that's just the name. That's the name of the spirit. That's where we're talking. That's, that's the, that's the incredible animating energy of life, of love that we're talking about. And I just like remember bursting out laughing of like, Oh, I had been ignoring my whole life. I'd been neglecting what how i understand that it, it couldn't be more important part of of the theology it's part of the trinity you know it's it's such so it felt there that would made me realize in that same ceremony like shit i'm a christian again <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. part of our our unwillingness to engage spirit fully I think is uh, not necessarily a Western or Presbyterian hang up. It's that, well, I would know it probably is Western materialism. We want to quantify yeah. everything yeah. like, okay, there's this divine creator. I got that. Okay. He sent this, you know, a uh, son here, a bodily manifestation of himself, but then there's this spirit that we can't uh, put in a box. We can't, program it, quantify it, measure it. It just somehow fuels everything. Um, yeah. 
that gets that gets fuzzy and so we kind of naturally avoid that but there's something i appreciate uh, as my christian journey has gone i've I've been introduced to a broader spectrum of christianity so when i hear people in from a more eastern perspective uh maybe orthodox eastern orthodox russian orthodox to them mystery is not a hang-up right you know they they embrace the mystery that is a struggle for the Western mind. It is for mine. And yeah. uh, it appears to be for culture at large. Uh, not <laughs> yeah. only to say, yeah, that's a mystery, but to say that's a beautiful mystery and just um, love yeah. it. Love it for the mystery it is. And that's, that's where that's where I find the spirit. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I want to I also want to steel man a little bit, the sort of more classic I'll say Calvinist or Presbyterian approach to why maybe the spirit isn't always trust. Maybe we have a hard time trusting the spirit as I've, and I I didn't, I didn't jump right back into being a Presbyterian. I I searched around for a little bit for other, other Christian denominations, but then I eventually was like, I just need to be back home and my, I need to be a weirdo at home rather than trying to do anything else. Um, But I, you know, something, and I, it's not like I, it's all like contextual, but it's all, you know, I'm not saying I, I agree with everything, but the, the, in my mind, how I see it is like as beautiful, as powerful, the spirit is sometimes we as humans misinterpret how to relate to it. We don't always, you know, there has been a lot of harm done through ecstatic spiritual energy. So it's not like it is a problem assuming that anything that you feel like you're filled with the Holy. And sometimes it's hard to differentiate. Is this Holy spirit or is it ego? Right. And it's some, so there are some reasons why maybe we, we have some skepticism or some caution for how we, how we deal and how we relate to um, the spirit. And that's part of what I think is a prayerful discerning way to relate to the spirit. Um, But I think your points basically are spot on. And it's something that I've like come to realize how much you know, I, Pentecostals were always like, the, I, I had never knew what to, what to do with them. I was like, they're just so strange to me. And like, but now it's like, they have something I, I, I imagine that the handful of people I know that have, that were grew up Pentecostal there, there's actually a lot I I've heard of in their tradition about like, well, this is how you relate to the whole, there, there are kind of, there are, there is a process for what do we do when you feel overcome with the spirit? Like, how do you, how do you translate those experiences? So that's part of what I love about the sort of ecumenical Christian conversation is the idea that like each denomination has some, something important to say. And there's some, that doesn't, that's not to say that like, you know, I, I, there's a lot, I think that why I'm a Presbyterian again is because I know it really intimately well. I also find it to be really helpful and useful and I guess deeply true in a lot of ways, but I also don't want to act like there's nothing to learn from any other denomination either, that there's some, some way of relating to God or Jesus. And we all have slightly different emphases about where we, where do we really put our emphasis? And I think, I think we're best when we, when we are in conversation with each other so that, you know, my, the, the Presbyterian frozen chosen tendencies can be balanced out by, you know, folks who are a little bit more regularly in tune with the Holy spirit and the Presbyterian may be classically like pretty historically against like having iconography in church and pretty against like having 
a lot of like being big on aesthetics because we see how sin gets <laughs> man of right, idolatry right. gets in through it. Um, it's a healthy how, wariness from like straying too far from the discernible path. Yeah. You know, I mean, I spent 16 years in a Calvinistic Presbyterian church. So, and that's where I yeah. cut my teeth yeah, yeah. on theology. So it was very intentional study of the Bible yeah. and to quote Francis Schaeffer, how should we then live? So you want like to read something and then live out that result. And it's a very like practical living kind of Christianity. And so it's hard to intermingle spiritual inspiration into, no, I've got a set of instructions over here. Like, you know, I'm following yeah. the instructions and then there's this spirit that seems unstructured. And I don't right. know how to integrate those two things. Well, and I, I've really come to, and I think you're, you're, you're spot on with that too. And I, I think what I've really come, what I, this isn't the reason I'm a Christian. I mean, the reason I'm a Christian is kind of what I told you. Like that was an that initial experience of grace and it was totally experiential. I could never have been argued into Christianity. You know, I could never have been like convinced in that kind of way. It was, it was that direct experience that then had me continuing to do the legwork and the theological work and the like reconsidering of what is, what is the history of the church? What is it all about? What have, what have people, what is this long conversation of Christianity? What, what have they really been talking about now that I can hear it again and all that kind of thing. But what reaffirms and strengthens my, not just my faith, but my belief in religion, <laughs> my belief that there is something that the church actually has to offer. It is seeing some of the problems in the, the psychedelic world as, you know, as beautiful as good psychedelic therapy is, there's also there, more and more, seems like each week, stories of prior abuse comes out. I mean, it's like anything else. There are, and this is again, where my theology is so helpful for me, which is, well, what do you expect? We're all sinners. I mean, this is, I, th I think that's a, some people still interpret that as a really shameful thing or as a shaming language, but it's like, no, man, that's the most compassionate view that I can have of humanity is just, we're all caught in sin, all of it. And it doesn't matter whether you're in church or out of church, but I, I, I'm grateful for being in church where we're at least talking about it. We're at least naming it. We're at least trying to identify the problem and we're confessing each week. We're witnessing to, to love and we're confessing where we've messed up, you know, and that that feels so I love a lot of my psychedelic friends that have nothing, want nothing to do with Christianity. And this community was not a Christian community that ultimately facilitated my coming back into Christianity. So there's clearly a lot. God can work through all kinds of ways and all kinds of people, all kinds of organizations and something uh, the phrase that's been sticking in my mind recently is I think that psychedel psychedelics can be religious harm reduction in a certain way of helping us process and move some things and helping us come to a different place around Christianity where people have been hurt by church. So in that way, psychedelics can be religious harm reduction. But I also think religion can be psychedelic harm reduction too. And I also think that having these structures, having these containers, big word in the psychedelic world, a container, discipline, a set of way we do things is how you ultimately relate to an intensely spiritual sort of chaotic times, sometimes very chaotic spiritual experience. You counter that with discipline. You counter that 
with structure, you counter that with some sense of order that the church at its best, that's what it can do. But the church, when it's, when it's order for order's sake, then church is what we don't like about church. Then it's everything that we all have gripes with, you know, it's, it's it loses its spiritual energy or it's oppressive or it's whatever, but if it's chaos for chaos's sake or spirit, that's not contained, then it's just, that's also, we, we know time and again, that's bad. That's the book of judges. That's the history of right. like, you know, this is what happens. You know, there was no King of Israel then those days and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, you know? So clearly there is a, there's a, a middle ground, I think, which is the union of opposites here of and the counterintuitive, like I, I, without, I don't know that I would trust myself to continue working with psychedelics in the future if I didn't have a religious framework, both in the practical, like in the community sense and like in the ceremony litur- in a liturgical way, but also in a psychological and theological way. Like I need, I need to listen and learn and submit myself to something that's bigger th- that I didn't come up with something that is as sacred as the scriptures as a sacred, even as the theological conversation. And so I, I don't, I have my piece of the truth from my own individual experience, but I have to be in constant conversation with everybody else's. And that's the only way that I feel like I can totally feel comfortable. So anyway, that's my, that's my stump speech for why I think this is a really important union here and a mutually beneficial one. And that's, that's a, a big part of where my, my passion currently is. Yeah. I think we're um, as the church at large, I think we're, just barely beginning that journey of being able to incorporate these two things because for better or worse, the modern church has never recognized these modalities as informative. So they've been relegated to the space of bad or unknown. And so we've only seen the negative of people identifying with these modalities. So what did how does that change once they enter a more spiritual, structured, intentional context? Maybe there is potential upside I, that we've, we've just yet to see yet. I think so. And I'm in a class with on Thomas Merton this semester, famous Catholic monk. And he, I found through him, he had a couple of letters exchanges with Aldous Huxley and a couple of journal entries where he was very not, he, he was not into psychedelics. He was skeptical. Uh, he, he went from skeptical of them in the late fifties when he was first hearing about them through Huxley, um, expressing some real concerns that I, I take seriously and I think are, are legitimate. And then he kind of, he got more and more jaded in, in the early and mid sixties, as he saw the early psychedelic movement, which was a sort of, for him, I, I you know, I don't want to like, it's a very complex argument as he, as Merton makes, but, basically it's like it's such an american way as he said to like try to have mysticism is like just take a drug and have a thing and there's some there's a piece of me that's like ooh, yeah that feels there's some there's something about that that feels a little like too convenient it's like a convenience thing um but i also think like drive through spirituality right right so i want to avoid we need to avoid that i think but what i I don't think had entered Merton's mind was that because as he was writing, it's clearly he's thinking about the sort of either casual, recreational, unstructured, unreligious use of like, and he's, he was really challenging Huxley's 
view that this could these experiences could replace religion that these experiences were subs these gives you the same mystical experiences as a sort of perennial philosophy of that like that all mystical experience gives you and that's and you just need to and he's so merton was like yeah but then people are going to be dependent on a drug for a certain kind of experience and all this stuff but what i think merton missed is that is the idea that these could be done in a liturgical context uh, that you could really bring um, a worshipful container to these. And the, and the idea also, there's some, there's a part of me that's, I think some of the tension, the classic tension between, let's say traditional mystics who were contemplatives, like monastic, some of their hesitance is that it seems a little bit too easy, but sometimes I wonder if there's a little bit of like, um, oh, what's the parable of the workers in the fields when there's the workers who were working for eight hours and then they get the same wage as the one who showed up in the half hour. And I'm like, is there a little bit of that? Maybe you don't want grace to be that cheap, you know? Yeah. yeah. Cause I now you've got to climb this staircase on your knees for 20 years. You can't just like uh, cash that free psychedelic ticket and get to the top of the top of the right. staircase. Yeah. But, and you know, but I, I don't want to like completely dismiss what they're saying, but I do think, because I guess I just don't think of it as, again, it's not about being one time healed. Any, in any way that go into worship on Sunday um, makes you like fully fine with like, you're just good. It's not like we go to worship once and then we're fixed, you know, I mean, there's something, there is something that we clearly need as humans to regularly remind ourselves. I mean, that, that's, that, that's as Hebrew Bible, Old Testament as it gets is like, the nature of our tradition is constant memory and remembering mm -hmm. and remembering who we are and where we came from and who this God is and what's our relationship to this incredible, gracious, loving God, you know, being spiritually fed. You don't just eat a nourishing meal once and then go on living life, having been fully sustained by one meal. You know, right. we need, we need to be fed spiritually daily. But, and I, you know, just to, push back on myself again too it's i also think it's possible that people have these sorts of these kinds of psychedelic and plant medicine experiences once and that's all they need i think there are some people that don't or or never i don't think everybody needs to i know not i know for a fact not everybody should no i wasn't I mean, insinuating that people need no to i know be you weren't either. psychedelically fed on a regular basis <laughs> but right uh, no right right i just want to maybe clarify what we're oh, yeah. that in case people got mistaken yeah, I, what we're saying yeah for sure yeah it's um, easy it's easy to be misinterpreted um when you're speaking in in, in broad yeah. ways on the on this topic where are your where's your education process taking you there at harvard are you are you in the middle of that process do you have you discerned a call or are you yeah i'm in the middle of my program i took last year off because i did not want to do zoom university so I, but i've been still growing and, and working at local churches and things like that. But um, yeah, I'm, I am an inquirer in Presbyterian church USA through my, my local church um, active in my local church. T most of my courses are in our Christianity related more than psychedelics related, even though I'm, those are, <laughs> that's kind of my, a lot of my conversations and where my thought process goes for trying to, how, how we integrate it. Today, when you're asking me, I still am discerning what the particulars of whether it's parish ministry or some other field goes, chaplaincy. I love preaching, but I also really love my um, chaplain internship this past summer, like I was mentioning at the, the VA and working with veterans in particular. 
but also just there's something that felt really beautiful about the direct ministry of chaplaincy of just like talking with people when there's not an audience and <laughs> it's just you and another person and it's a lot of listening which I need clearly as I've been talking so much on this podcast like I need <laughs> I need I need formats where I need to just like I'm asked to just listen and actively listen and I also I do think that psychedelic chaplaincy is a real way that the church can arguably might have a what's a, a call <laughs> as a responsibility to understand to, to relate to these experiences because as psychedelics you know when they become a lot more integrated in uh, clinical settings and therapeutic settings there's going to be a lot of christians that are having profoundly spiritual experiences that are hard to describe and i don't i I love the therapists that are doing this work and I love the researchers and scientists, but I don't think they are equipped to help people deal with theological and spiritual questions. And that's okay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not equipped to deal with scientific and therapy questions, you know, but um, I, I think that the idea of having clergy who are at least conversant in these experiences is going to be extremely important, whether we agree with them or not or whether we know what to do with them or not, it's not even about agreeing or agreeing. They're just experiences that we, it's just life. It's stuff that people are going through. And it goes back to I, that yeah. concept of a container. Yeah. Are we, are we going to be able, Yeah. are we going to be a container for their, um, for what those people are going through? Exactly. We're going to be able to hold space for them and allow them to uh, integrate that experience into their Christian walk. Exactly. And that's what's fascinating that I've, learned over the past couple of years as I've studied chaplaincy and, you know, had gotten a little bit of experience too, is how much of the sort of in the psychedelic world, when they have, whether it's therapists or trip sitters more informally, like how much of that really matches up with the skills they ask you to like, that you're called to develop as a chaplain and call, like chaplains are not evangelical, right? They're not there to convince anybody, but they're helped to attend to people, whatever their spiritual beliefs are and help them perform or provide their religious needs um, as they need. And so, you know, there's a lot of like being a presence about your personal energy, about asking questions, about just being with, again, it's, a, it's, it's almost like we had, <laughs> like, we've just had this field of this particular form of ministry of the chaplain that feels really just kind of perfect for the moment of this, this very new modality that we otherwise don't know we're, we're still figuring out as humans, you know, it was well, Westerners, especially like, how do we, how do we relate to these? How do we, how do we integrate these? You know, that it's, I think there will be other roles and other clerical clerical type roles that are also necessary as far as like integration coaches and spiritual directors that will also be important. I think a lot of psychedelic experiences can be classified as we have an experience of the non-dual and then you have integration is how you put that into a dualistic practice of your life. How do you actually make sense of it in your day-to-day? And to me, that's a lot of Christianity too. So we have this experience of this God beyond our understanding, beyond all knowledge, we have such a small piece of that. And so we have Jesus as our, as our integration coach, as our, here's how you put it into practice, man. This is what, like, know that you're a child of God and this is what you're supposed to do about it. So right. I think there's so much that is a natural 
marriage between this this modality and in our faith. And I think psychedelic chaplains will be, I hope they're really well poised for it. Well, it sounds like we may need a whole new calling, a whole new group of people to step into that space. Um, not necessarily as pastors or priests, but maybe uh, a clerical calling of people who just help shepherd people through their, their spiritual slash traumatic slash psychedelic experiences in a, in a chaplain way, just, just holding their hand and walking them through their experiences, not necessarily in a teaching practical way. Mm-hmm. And that, that is what a lot of us are doing both here at Harvard um, with my friend and colleague, Rachel Peterson, and a bunch of others here at um, the Divinity School are starting to really more seriously interrogate those questions. And, and it's, it's much bigger than Harvard too, as far as we've begun collaborating, especially last year. We used that pandemic time to connect with folks from the GTU, which is a, a Berkeley um, Bay Area um, consortium of theological schools. There's a lot of great work happening at Emory University um, on a, several different fronts as far as, you know, there's a, there, there are people, a lot more people than me that are also interested in what does it mean to be psychedelic chaplains and a lot of chaplains with a lot more chaplain ex- experience than I have too. And it's like, it's a combination for me in my mind, it's, it's a combination of people like myself who are probably have more on the psychedelic experience than chaplain experience. I need to learn how to be a chaplain and need to learn, like, you know, study my Bible and all those good things that they asked me to do as an ordination. And, you know, the, the, the people who have been in the chaplaincy game, they're learning more and more about like, well, what, what is, what's going on with this, this psychedelic thing. And so there's, I think there's a, there's already a slow merging of those two knowledge bases. That's, it is really exciting to see. And it's not going to be, we're not going to be perfect. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be fast or instant, but the process is underway. I'm really excited for it. And in addition to this work, I'm also, I, I should say briefly, you know, that I'm, I'm doing some work for the Sacred Plant Alliance, which is emerged out of the Chakruna Institute, which is a, it's a non-Christian organization. And um, it's really about securing these other rights, um, these religious rights, as mentioned in my bio, for churches that are, have been operating and helping people like myself have these really profound spiritual experiences but are in this gray area of uncertainty uh, as far as their relationship to the government. They are sincere religious practitioner. Like, I, I think if you went to any of these places, you would say, you would know instantly like, Oh, this is a real, this is a real religion. I don't know what, I don't understand it, but there's something, these are sincere religious practitioners. And it's really important to me as a Christian to, um, and part of my interfaith dialogue is to make sure I'm not just looking out for Christianity. I mean, for so that I'm also helping people that have helped me in my path and that are, I think are doing good work and also need some help. And they're, and part of that, part of also what they're doing is helping be in dialogue with each other, fellowship with each other, just as we are in fellowship with each other as Christians, try to figure out what is the best, what are the best and safest practices, trying to continue to up their game and up their, their processes around like, ethics and all these types of things that are, again, stuff that, that these, that's one of the benefits of organized religion is we've had a lot of time. We've seen how poorly it can go in a lot of our denominations. And we have a lot of rules because there's a lot of different ways it can go poorly. And so anyway, I I just think there's a lot of, there's, there's, there's a whole other element and a whole other world that is also important. 
for me to continue attending to. And I'm also optimistic about what's happening in that space, but that's probably a conversation for another time. Well, Joe, what could you possibly leave our listeners with in regard to further understanding their own spiritual or Christian walk? And how can we as Christians begin to wrap our minds around this concept of plant medicine, psychedelics being integrated into our culture? There's so many avenues, you know, there's clinical approaches, there's spiritual approaches, recreational approaches. Oftentimes, I'm at a loss for a way to tell my friends to investigate the topic, you know, because it's so multifaceted and so difficult when we bring our, our current spiritual legalistic paradigm to it. I feel like it's a little bit of a clash of culture at this point. I guess in a nutshell, I'm asking <laughs> you a difficult question. How do we navigate integrating these two areas that appear to be at odds but I don't think in reality are. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Big question. Um, big question. Sorry. I don't, no, 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 no. And I, somebody asked me yesterday, like <laughs> to try to send them, like if I could send them one thing, I'm like, I don't know that there exists like a single book or like anything. It's like, that doesn't quite exist yet. There was one book in part. If I, if I could point to one book, maybe it, I feel like it was light on the Christianity part, but it was helpful for me to understanding Again, I mentioned it earlier in this conversation, but it's called A Different Medicine by Joseph Calabrese. And he was, a, I believe he was a clinician who visited a Native American church-based recovery center. And he was seeing how these, how peyote practice in this indigenous context was used to treat alcoholism on this particular um, reservation. And so that, I think that helped me get some of my rap wrapping my mind around a little bit of the history of that church and some of the, the issues at play. But other than that, I think it's like cobbled together from a lot of different resources. You, you kind of start piecing it together. I think once you start looking for it and looking for a history here and looking for these connections, they start, it starts making more sense. And, you know, you know, as I go into some of the history of Christian mysticism, whether it's through Thomas Merton or much older than him, I mean, you see these, People like Teresa of Avila, Julian Norwich, um, Meister Eckhart with these really either ecstatic experiences that they then put in, try to put into words or these really ineffable experiences of God. I mean, there, there is a part of our Christian tradition that deals with the weird, you know, that deals with the unordinary and doesn't leave their relationship with God. In fact, it strengthens their relationship with God. And so, yeah, that's the best I can offer. I wish I had a, oh, a better good. answer. That's excellent. It's easy for us to relegate those things to the periphery and just not deal with them. But, you know, it's my understanding Marina Sabina was a practicing Christian. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so for her, integrating that was probably natural. Yeah. You know, we're having to come at it from a post-prohibition mindset. Yeah. And there's, I want, I want to say too, I, I know there's people who are in the Native American church who may not their relationship with Christianity is also complicated because a lot of we've learned more and more the stuff that's been, you know, how much of forced conversions happened as part of their history. So it, it but then, you know, you have people like Nicholas Black Elk, who was um, he's, I think he's, the, he's either a Catholic saint or he's like on his way to Catholic sainthood, who was a revered, a revered leader who came to Christianity 
you know, there was a, uh, I read a, a biography of a, a man named William Apis, who was a early 19th century indigenous Methodist preacher um, who came in you know, Methodism back then was, it was wild. It was, it was a lot more, you know, method. When we think about Methodists now, we don't, we don't think of them as like the, the forebears of the evangelical movement. Like they were originally, oh, originally they were the frontiersmen, you know, they were the, yeah, the, the pastors yeah. on horseback making the circuit. Exactly. Um, so William Apis, um, A-P-E-S-S has another really interesting story as somebody who had a dual indigenous and Christian identity and both were really important to him and talked about the racism he dealt with. Um, he also, <laughs> and this is kind of in the side, but back then Presbyterians were even more boring than they were now. He was not, he, he went to a Presbyterian church. He's like, Oh, this sucks. <laughs> the Methodists are having a lot more fun. Yeah. We, our, our, our frozenness has uh, is more of a slushiness. Than... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For us uh, Anglicans <laughs> and Presbyterians, we're becoming a little, uh, we're thawing slowly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. But well, I, yeah, you know, I just, I, again, last, sorry, I guess last thing, it's just, I think we also just, we, we learn about it through conversation. I mean, I think friends of yours can learn about it through just talking to you and asking you, maybe we, we, that's, you, you, it's not always just go into a book to find the knowledge about it. I mean, it's, it's um, if you don't want to have a personal direct experience of it, you, or if you're feeling sure about that or anything like that, then yeah, I don't know. Try to try to build some relationships. You, people can reach out to me if they want. I mean, right. shoot. Is, is there a, an avenue where you'd like people to reach out to you if possible? Um, I still have my, even though I, I retired my podcast because choose your own religion became it went from pick, you know, create your own religion to, oh, shoot, like be water the grass. The grass is greenest where you water it. So be at home, pick your own tradition um, was kind of move for it. So I, I retired the podcast, but I still check the email. So Joe at choose your own religion dot com. That's a good place to to reach me if you want to if you want to shoot me something. If you're if you're curious to talk more, I like clearly love gabbing about this stuff. So. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of value value in uh, listening to your interviews, at least from my perspective, I've never been particularly offended by other people's approach to religion and spirituality. You know, obviously I have my own groundedness in my tradition, but hearing those interviews to me is, is comforting because I think a lot of times people walk through their life without ever actually articulating what their ethics are. You know, it's such a hodgepodge of their early upbringing and leave it to beaver and whatever they learned in high school. We're, the, we're, we're kind of this walking, talking, ethical train wrecks, really. <laughs> a, a bunch of divergent ethical paradigms coming together. And we're trying to hold them all in this awkward bundle and, um, and I think allowing a person to articulate what their, what their religious and spiritual values are can actually help them uh, possibly find a spiritual home somewhere. Oh, I think so. I, I really think the podcast, it's, it, it, I didn't realize it, but it just, it allowed me to process because it, it forced me to, to talk and, and to talk things through. It forced me to put that in the conversation forced me to try to articulate as you're saying it's it's not just a, 
so I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I appreciate what you said about the, about the podcast. I'm glad you, glad you got something out of it. Yeah. I found a lot of value there. Well, I'm going to let you go. It's been a great uh, time picking your brain. I enjoyed your participation in other venues. Uh, I saw you recently on that, uh, I believe it's a Trakuna event or SciTech with Hunt and some other spiritual leaders uh, in the in the church. I, yeah. I think you're right. I think we're going to learn as we discuss these things. You know, we're not going to oh. have uh, an album that falls from the sky and tells us, uh, gives us perfect wisdom on how to navigate all this. Uh, it's going to come in time and through sharing our own experiences and our own ideas. Thank you, Clint. And sorry, last thing I, since you brought up hunt, I'm kicking myself. He's going to get, he might get mad at me that I'm also doing, I'm I'm doing an internship right now for Ligare, the, this new organization that is exploring Christianity and psychedelics. And so definitely go to (laughs) Ligare.org, join the mailing list. Because there's there's going to be a lot more coming in this coming year, and I hope for years to come. I, I I don't think it's arrogant to say we're the main people exploring this intersection. It's the it's the main group of Christians I've found that's openly talking about stuff. And so I would we would love to have more Christians the merrier. Whether you're you're anywhere from ambivalent and unsure not really know what to make of this to you're like jazzed about the idea, you know, anywhere where, if you have some kind of, if you're just, if you have a level of curiosity, um, would love to love to be in conversation with you. You can join us at again, ligare.org. Here's the plug. Yeah. Even if someone's not a Christian, they just want to know uh, what the heck the Christians are saying about all this. Exactly. It's a good exactly. place. To, good place to go to find out. Well, well, Joe, thank thanks, you, Clint. Thanks for joining us. And, uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing from you soon. I'm sure. (laughs) Take care. Take care. God bless. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joe. As Joe mentioned, he is a member of the Ligare community, the most active organization today exploring the intersection of psychedelics and Christianity. And if that's a topic of interest to you, I highly recommend that you make your way to Ligare.org and sign up for the newsletter. That's Ligare, L-I-G-A-R-E dot org. You can learn more about Joe's religious exploration and his journey back to Christianity on his podcast, Choose Your Own Religion. Although the podcast is now retired, it is still available, and I encourage you to check it out. If you would like to connect with Joe, you can reach out to him through his email address, joe at chooseyourownreligion.com. And if you would like to share your thoughts or experiences with me, you can always meet, reach me through the email address contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. Again, I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. And until our next episode, where we will continue to explore the topic of faith and psychedelics, may the Lord bless you and keep you.